Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In 1935, a school teacher in Rwanda, Africa, a man named Blasio Kugosi, was deeply depressed. He mourned the lack of power and enthusiasm in his church, even the lack of passion in his own Christian life. Blasio took time off from his teaching, and he retreated to a secluded cottage for a week of prayer and fasting. His time alone with God changed Blasio's life. He returned home filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, Blasio confessed his sins to those he'd harmed. He apologized to his wife and kids. He went back to his school and he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And revival broke out. Students and teachers alike were set ablaze with love for God. Blasio's converts were known by an African word, Abaka, which means people on fire. A few weeks afterwards, Blasio was invited to an Anglican church in Uganda. Again, God poured out His Spirit and revival sparked, just as it had in his home country of Rwanda. Yet sadly, while in Uganda, Blasio became sick. He developed a high fever, and he died a sudden death. Blasio Kugosi's ministry lasted only a few weeks, but the revival that he helped spark swept across East Africa. Its effects are felt even today. Hundreds of thousands of people were saved and transformed by the Holy Spirit through the mighty East African revival. But it all began when a deflated believer in Jesus got tired of living an apathetic, uninspired Christian life and decided to seek the Lord. Blasio Kugosi, he lived the rest of his short life as a passionate, on-fire follower of Jesus. And this is how God wants every Christian to live. What a fitting name, the Abaka, or people on fire. And this morning, I want to challenge us to be the Abaka. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing real righteousness, real worship. And it's not just performance. It's an attitude of the heart. It comes out of a passion for God. Reminds me of the church member. He took his pastor to a college football game. After weaving their way through the crowd and finally finding their seats, the pastor said, I hate football. I mean, the fellow, he asked him, he said, well, why in the world did you come? The pastor answered, well, I just love to be where people are excited about something. Of course, that pastor's comment is an indictment against his church. 
And there are too many churches today that are like the church in Ephesus. In Revelation 2, verse 4, Jesus had to rebuke this church. I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Their love for Jesus has grown cold. Their faith lacks fire. See, God wants us to be fully alive. The rest of the world might resemble the walking dead, alive physically, but dead spiritually, whereas God wants us to be animated by His Spirit. Passionate living should be the mark of every Christian. But here's the problem. We tend to wind down, don't we? The other day I noticed that either my son Nick has grown half an inch or I've shrunk half an inch. He and I used to always be about the same height, but he's now definitely taller. And to be honest with you, I think it's me. I'm afraid that 57 years of gravity has finally taken its toll. And there is such a thing as spiritual gravity. Despite how tall we might have stood in the past, time and life and the world and the devil can all combine to produce a drag on us spiritually. Gravity weighs us down. Our tendency is to slump over rather than to stand tall. This is why enthusiasm for Jesus is never an accident. It's the result of deliberate choices. Passion has to be cultivated. The abaca are people who kindle and who stoke the fire. And so here's the question. How do we live like an abaca? How do we stay on fire for the cause of Jesus Christ? Well, in our text this morning, Jesus provides us a road map for the heart. The path to passionate living starts at the treasury of our lives, the storehouse, what we value. It then winds past the tower of our lives, the lookout, where we gain perspective, how we see our lives. And then the road ends up at the throne of our heart, the place where we bow, what or who we actually serve. Think of a road this morning with three forks. When you reach the treasury and then the tower and then the throne, you have a choice to make. The first fork deals with our goals. The second fork addresses our gaze. And the third fork exposes our God. You see, here is where life makes up its mind, where the road forks. What's your goal? What is it that you live for? What's your gaze? How do you see life? And who is your God? Who is it that you bow and serve? In Jewish folklore, there's the story of two men that were walking along life's road. It was nighttime. It was dark. The first man, he couldn't see where he was headed, where the road goes. Suddenly a storm flashed lightning across the sky. This foolish, fearful man, he looked up terrified of the lightning. Whereas the wise man was walking the same road. But when the lightning flashed, his eyes looked downward and ahead at the fork in the road that was being illuminated. You see, perhaps God has sent you into a storm. Lightning is flashing all around you. But God's intent is not to scare you. He's illuminating your path. He wants you to reevaluate your priorities, your perspective, your loyalties. 
As one man observed, I'm sure that the bit of the road that most requires to be illuminated is the point where it forks. And this morning, I want us to look at the forks in the road. Are we making the right decisions? You see, the first fork in the road is by the treasury. What's your treasure? What in life do you value most? As Jesus says in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Hey, if you want a heart on fire for Jesus, a passionate, vibrant faith, then identify your treasure. For our heart is always tied to our treasure. And Jesus tells us that all treasure falls in one of two categories. In verses 19 and 20, He mentions both treasures on earth and then treasures in heaven. Everyone has goals in life. Everyone has their treasure. It's either material or spiritual. It's either earthly or heavenly. And if you want to live passionately for Jesus, here's the first step. Value what's spiritual and heavenly and eternal, not what's material and earthly and temporal. Stay in hot pursuit of the right kind of treasure. Understand, when Jesus tells us in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. He's not making a plea for poverty. One of the most misquoted passages in all the Bible is 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. You've all heard it said, money is the root of all evil. But that's not what the Bible says. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 is much more exact. It declares the love of money is the root of all evil. Money itself isn't evil. Money, as well as all other kinds of earthly treasures, whether fame or friends or career or hobbies or entertainment or art or sports, whatever it might be, these things aren't evil intrinsically. It's all in how that treasure gets used. The Bible is full of encouragement to provide for our families. God promises to meet our needs. At times, He even chooses to make us prosper. You see, materialism has nothing to do with the amount, but with the attitude. The Greek word that gets translated in our text as treasure is really the word thesaurus. In English, a thesaurus is a treasury of terms. In the Greek, the literal meaning of thesaurus was to lay out a row of coins horizontally. The implication is to stockpile or hoard or exhibit your money in an effort to show off your wealth. A man would lay out his coins in a row so that everyone could count them. Jesus is speaking not of the man who obtains treasure to provide for his family, but the man who uses his treasure to try to impress others and exalt himself. Notice verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves. Comedian Jack Benny, he used to do a skit in his act. A robber would approach him with a gun. It was a stick-up. He would demand, your money or your life. Well, Benny said nothing. And so the would-be burglar, he yelled louder, your money or your life. Finally, Jack Benny replied, hold your horses. Can't you see I'm thinking about it? Tragically, for some people, their money is their life. What's your life? What's your treasure? If you inventoried your thoughts and concerns this morning, 
How much time do you spend thinking about material stuff? Do you spend more time on eBay or Amazon than on your knees? Do you follow the stock market closer than you follow the scriptures? What's your treasure? Or maybe your treasure isn't money. It could be golf or football or NASCAR or you're into music or video games or it's the job. You never take a day off. What's your treasure? What are the active goals in your life? You see, God's concern is not what you have, but what has you. Are your riches of the earthly sort, or are they spiritual and heavenly? And there's a reason Jesus is so concerned. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Hey, think with me for a minute. In making any kind of an investment, there are really two criteria that we need to investigate. We want to minimize our risk, and we want to maximize our profit. And Jesus would agree. In fact, with the few short years that you have left, make sure you invest your life wisely. Jesus warns His disciples here in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Earthly treasure is high risk. It's vulnerable to bugs and burglars, rust and rot. In the ancient world, there were no banks or stock markets, and so often a person's wealth was invested in expensive clothes. A rich man would have his tailor weave threads of gold into the linen garments in order to show off his wealth. And it was almost humorous, always a joke, always ironic to see one of those elaborate robes after the moths had taken a bite out of it, turned it into a rag. Its beauty never lasted. Other people would invest their wealth in grain, and yet storing it in those silos for long periods of time were always problematic. Decay could ruin a whole harvest. Still other investors hid their wealth in the walls of their clay houses, or they would bury it out in the fields. But an able thief could sniff it out, could dig it up. And I hope you realize that in modern times, earthly treasures are still just as fragile. Nothing has changed. Rather than rust, we worry today about bust. Banks can fold and businesses can fail. The economy can wilt. Whether it's gas prices or interest rates or foreign trade or downsizing or outsourcing or inflation, there are a million moths that threaten your earthly investments. Earthly treasure in any age is a high-risk investment. And it's also low profit. I mean, why fall in love with a boat or a house or a car when one day it's all going to burn? It's been said, if you don't want a broken heart, don't trust in breakables. If it's not going to matter 10 years from now, let alone 100 years from now, how valuable could it have been? Earthly treasures have a short shelf life. You see, Jesus knew how easily a possession could become an obsession. You tell me. Does the fly have hold of the flypaper? Or does the flypaper have hold of the fly? 
hard to tell, isn't it? Earthly stuff gets sticky. Tie your heart to spiritual, heavenly, eternal treasure, and you'll stay passionately in love with Jesus. But start flirting with the world. Let your heart get attached to earthly, temporal stuff. And no matter how noble it might seem, it'll end up destroying your passion for Jesus. In the Star Wars movies, the evil Darth Vader, he was once a good guy, Anakin Skywalker. And in one of his interviews, producer George Lucas described how it happened, how he crossed over to the dark side. Lucas said, he gets attached to things. He can't let go of his mother. He can't let go of his girlfriend. He can't let go of things. It makes you greedy. And when you're greedy, you're on the path to the dark side because you fear you're going to lose things, that you're not going to have the power you need. You see, treasure the wrong stuff, and it'll destroy your heart for Jesus. You'll become too attached to things. The largest archaeological dig in Israel is the ancient town of Bethshan. It was a major city in Roman times before it was destroyed by a colossal earthquake. Once during a tour of Bethshan, our, our guide, he took us down to the temple of Dionysus. It was here that the archaeologists, they found a skeleton of a hand clutching onto gold coins. It seems that as the earthquake started, this man ran inside to grab the treasure and he died when the roof caved in on him. Literally, he died because he valued the wrong treasure. Don't say it can't happen to you. It can. Check your heart. Track your treasure. Here is the first fork in the road. Watch your goal in life. What are you living for? Your heart will always be tied to your treasure. But the road doesn't end there. It weaves past the treasury. And it moves to the tower, for it's from the watchtower of life that we get a good look, that we can gain a strategic viewpoint. And it's my gaze that will ultimately determine these goals that we've been talking about. You see, how I see life will direct what I treasure in life. Perspective decides priorities. Outlook determines outcome. Read again verses 22 and 23. It says, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Recently I went on the internet to look at some sunglasses. And talk about sticker shock. My jaw dropped. Gucci glasses with Python frames for just $699. And that's a bargain. They retail for $800. I didn't know eyewear was so valuable. But I should have. For the lens through which you interpret life is what's going to determine the conclusions you draw. See, even if you've been, never been fitted with any kind of glasses, even if you have 20-20 vision, we all are sporting some kind of eyewear. In fact, you're wearing spiritual glasses right now. 
It's a fundamental principle. Where your treasure is, your heart will follow. But here's a second principle. What you treasure will depend on your point of view. Here's a great example. What if you and I went to clean out my garage? There would be immediate conflict. Why you got that old bucket of baseball, Sandy? It stinks. Your kids are all grown, but you better not touch that bucket of baseballs. They're waiting on my grandkids. I'm going to pitch bat and practice to my grandkids. Or what about that yellow wooden stool with the blue smiley face? Oh, surely that's got to be trash. But I'd fight you for that stool. I built it so my three boys, when they needed a little elevation to pee into the toilet, they'd have it. That stool has sentimental value. I'd sell my house before I gave up the pee-pee stool. You get the point, don't you? One man's rags are another man's riches. Whether it's trash or treasure, whether it's junk or jewels, depends on each person's point of view. Once there was a fellow, he asked his next-door neighbor if he'd help him find their adjoining property line. The next-door neighbor asked him, is this for owning or mowing? <laughs> a person's particular perspective is everything. I was following an automobile into church one Sunday morning. It was owned by an obvious NASCAR fan because the car had a bumper sticker on it that read, I'm not speeding, I'm qualifying. <laughs> I like that bumper sticker. It's an interesting perspective, but I'm sure the police officer doesn't share that point of view. Here's the point I'm making. Our treasures are determined by our outlook. And Jesus teaches us that there are really only two perspectives from which you can approach life. We see life from either the world's perspective or from God's perspective. As Jesus put it, your eye, it's either good or bad. It's either full of light or full of darkness. As the old saying goes, two men looked out of prison bars, one saw mud and one saw stars. You can look up or down. You can listen to man or you can listen to God. You see, the world's perspective on life is summed up in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. See, here's the world's definition of treasure. The world values what thrills the flesh, and what grabs the eyes, and what inflates the ego. Things we can acquire, our appearance, our ambitions. You see, the world lives for whatever it is that makes you feel great or look great or think you're great. God's perspective is just the opposite. He prizes the spiritual over the physical. The internal is far more important than the external, and the eternal He values more than the temporal. In Old Testament Israel, God placed a living, walking, talking memorial to His value system among His people. 
The Hebrew word nazir, it means to dedicate. And the Nazarite was a man who dedicated himself to God in a special way. His vow amounted to a point-by-point attack on the world's values. It clarified holy living. He was a walking billboard for God's priorities. The vow of the Nazarite was threefold. He wasn't to eat grapes or drink wine. A razor was to never come upon his head, nor was he to touch anything dead. You'd never find a Nazarite in a liquor store, at a hair salon, or in a funeral parlor. And quite frankly, all three places are getting heavy traffic today. No, God instituted the Nazarite to make a statement that life is more than feeling great and looking great and thinking you're great. No, real joy isn't produced by distilled spirits, but by the Holy Spirit. Deep pleasures are spiritual, not physical. Real beauty isn't found in a person's hair, but in their heart. It's integrity, not image, that gives a life value. And every mortuary is a reminder that meaning isn't found on earth, but in eternity. G. Campbell Morgan put it this way, Measurement of a man's worth cannot be made at the point where blue sky kisses green earth. It's God's approval, not earthly glory, that really matters. And so, there are two perspectives. The world measures what's important by the material and the external and the temporal, while God measures what matters by putting the tape around the spiritual and the internal and the eternal. And these two perspectives are like sunglasses. The tint of the lens decides the color of all that you see. The lens you wear determines how you see life. Have you heard the expression, rose-colored glasses? Well, each of us are wearing either world-colored glasses or God-colored glasses. Is your outlook tinted by what the world values or by what matters to God? And it's the color of your lens that ultimately dictates the treasure in your life. It's our gaze that sets our goals. Notice in verse 22, Jesus appeals to human anatomy. He says, the lamp of the body is the eye. Your eye is the portal, the opening that receives and filters light into your body. He continues, if therefore the eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. If you've got 20-20 vision, if you're seeing clearly, then it allows you to detect obstacles and judge proportion and measure distance and perceive color and avoid all kinds of things. The eye is good. If the eye is good, then your whole body is going to benefit. Yet in verse 23, Jesus counters, But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. In other words, if your eye has 2600 vision, then it's going to cause you to go bump in the night. Probably even bump in the daytime with that kind of vision. A dim eye places the whole body at a disadvantage. And your perspective is like your eye. It's the portal through which you receive and filter light into your soul and your spirit. That's why the shade 
of the lens that tints your perspective is what's going to affect your life, all of your life, in fact. What colors my view? My eye will determine how I live and what I treasure. You see, if I'm wearing God-colored glasses, or as Jesus puts it here in verse 22, if therefore my eye is good, then I'll see life as God sees it. I'll be able to discern His will. My life will go better if I wear God-colored glasses. Downhill skiing through a forest may sound like a death wish to some folks, but there are skiers who love the thrill of cutting through a stand of aspens while kicking up snow behind them. The key is not to hit the trees. Expert skier Tim Etchells, he gives some advice to these thrill seekers. I want you to listen closely. He says, what you focus your eyes on becomes more critical in the woods. Look at the spaces between the trees. The exits where you hope to be traveling. Don't stare at what you don't want to hit. And this is why God-tinted glasses are so important. This is what a godly perspective allows us to do. It allows us to focus on the spaces. To ski around the temptations of this world. To trust in the Spirit of God to fill our hearts with joy and guidance. You see, the trees, they're the tangibles of life. The stuff we can see. And we're tempted to focus on what's visible, aren't we? But we need to aim for the open spaces. We need to look for what we can't see. The spiritual joys. The power of the Holy Spirit. The spiritual guidance that God gives. We need to look for God. But if I persist in wearing worldly colored glasses, or as Jesus puts it, if my eye is bad, then all I see will be the trees. My perspective on life will be based on physical factors and outward appearances and temporal glory. With that perspective, every judgment I make will be warped and distorted. I won't see what God sees. It's been said, false seeing is worse than blindness. Sometimes it's better to be blind and to admit it than to see with blurred vision and think you're seeing clearly. Once there was a little old lady, she desperately wanted to get married again. But she had a shortage of eligible candidates. One day she was attending her garden club meeting where she met what seemed to be a very nice man. Oh, she was extremely interested in this gentleman. In fact, she asked a friend where he was from. Her friend said, well, for the last 20 years, he's been living in San Quentin prison. The lady responded, oh, really? Why was he there? Her friend replied, well, he was convicted for killing his wife. The lady, she breathed a sigh of relief. She said, oh, good. That means he's single. I mean, a jaded perspective is very, very dangerous. You start seeing things that you want to see. They may be false, but you you start seeing what you want to see rather than what's really there, than what's really true. 
This is what Jesus means at the end of verse 23. He says, if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words, if you're just seeing what you want to see, you'd be better off blind so that you'd have to admit that you can't see. If what I'm seeing is false, then my sight is worse than if I were blind. Here's another fork in the road. Am I wearing God-colored glasses? Seeing things from God's perspective? Or am I seeing world-colored glasses? Seeing things that I want to see. Passionate living involves perspective. How I see life will determine what I consider to be life's treasures. And so here's where we're at. Verses 19 to 21 teach us that our heart is tied to our treasure. Verses 22 and 23 teach us that our treasure is determined by our perspective. Now in verse 24 we learn that our perspective is ultimately decided by our master. Here's an easy way to remember it. Our heart is attached to our goals, but our goals are shaped by our gaze, and our gaze is determined by our God. You're looking for a bottom line. Here it is. The condition of our heart is dependent on the person or thing that rules it. And everybody serves somebody. In verse 24, Jesus brings us to the final fork. We all choose who it is we serve. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. See, when God created us, He made us worshipers. We all desire to be part of something bigger than ourselves. We're all drawn to an altar. Every heart has a throne. And on that throne sits a master of some sort. This is what caused the ancients to worship the sea or the stars or to carve out gods from sticks and stones. This is what drives modern people today to strip off their shirts and paint their torso the color of their favorite sports team, then sit in a snowy, cold stadium all afternoon and scream at the top of their lungs. Did you know that the word fanatic is from the Latin word phantom, which meant temple? The term fanaticism described the emotional frenzy inspired by a deity. Could it be that the allegiance we show our football team is related to our primal role as worshiper? Probably so. Whatever it might be, people get lost without something in their life to believe in. People even believe in themselves. Self-worship is certainly the most hollow form of worship, yet it is perhaps the most popular. You see, all people want a God to serve. A false God, perhaps. A puny God. A silly God. Even a destructive God. But a God nonetheless. People can't live without one. Augustine prayed, God, you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Every actor has a director. Every soldier has a commander. Every servant has a master. As I said, everybody serves somebody. And the point Jesus makes in verse 24 is that you can't worship multiple masters. You can have two jobs. Or two hobbies, 
But you can't have two gods. The throne that sits in the human heart is a one-seater. The top rung of our lives has room for only one occupant. Reminds me of the Tennessee cotton farmer. When the Civil War erupted, he couldn't choose sides. His allegiances were split. He had friends both north and south. And so he wore a gray jacket and blue trousers. One day he got caught in the middle of a skirmish. This was not his fight. So he walked out into the middle of the battlefield and declared his neutrality. And you know what happened. The Union sharpshooters, they saw his gray jacket. The Confederate marksmen, they saw his blue pants. He got shot at from both sides. You can't serve two masters. Perhaps some of you have been wearing the Christian's jacket, but the world's pants. You've been playing both sides. You've been trying to preserve your neutrality. You've been friendly with both camps. Trust me, it's not going to last long. See, here's another fork in the road. Oh, some of you know that God loves you and that you want to love God. But I can't get branded a Jesus freak. It'll limit my social opportunities or my business opportunities. So you've been playing both sides. We need to beware. There's an old African proverb that puts it, the man who tries to walk two roads will split his pants. You won't enjoy either side. Try to straddle the fence and you'll become a sorry sinner and a miserable saint. Jesus said it like this. He will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. He won't please either master. You see, the world wants your whole heart. It sucks you in more and more and more. And neither is Jesus content with half-heartedness. James 4 verse 4 puts it this way. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? I hope you realize that a dual devotion is no devotion at all. Recall the story that Jesus told of the rich young ruler. He wanted to follow. But when Jesus told the man to go and sell all his belongings, the fellow walked away sad. It wasn't that he didn't love Jesus. It wasn't that he didn't want Jesus. But there were just things in his life that he wanted more. His love for Jesus had a rival. There was another master vying for his loyalty. I once heard of a young man. He was expressing his love to his sweetheart. He said, honey, I'm not as wealthy or as handsome. And I don't have a mansion and a Mercedes like that Gerald Green, but... I love you with all my heart. The girl replied, she says, Well, I love you too, but could you tell me more about this Gerald Green? I mean, is there a Gerald Green in your life, in your heart? You say you love Jesus, but is there a contender for your allegiance? Is there a rival? Is there something in your life that's more important to you than God? One author writes this, Christ will put up with a great many things in the human heart. But there is one thing He never tolerates, and that's second place. None of Jesus' followers ever follow Him perfectly. Either we lag behind or we get ahead. But we need to embrace 
the basic relationship that He is our Master. C.S. Lewis once said, Every conversion is the story of a blessed defeat. A Christian is the person who submits to God's authority in exchange for His mercies. Hey, the Lord won't save who He can't command. That's another way of saying, no man can serve two masters. Caleb was one of two Hebrew spies who believed that God would give the victory to Israel if they just trusted Him, if they fought with the giants. In fact, he lived his whole life with this kind of passionate faith. Just before he died, the elder Caleb, he revealed his secret. He said, I wholly followed the Lord my God. I wholly followed the Lord my God. And this is what I want to be able to say at the end of my life. That I refuse to be distracted by lesser loyalties. That my devotion was never diluted or divided. That I was never a part-time Christian. That God had every part of me. Do you want to be one of the Abaka? A people on fire for God? Well, there are three forks in life. There are three forks in the road. At the treasury, what is it that you value? At the tower, your perspective will determine your treasures. And then at the throne, who you worship will determine how you see life. There are three choices to make. Our goals, our gaze, and our God. A person's heart is always tied to what we treasure. Our treasure is determined by our point of view, and our viewpoint is decided by our God. We are all at the fork in the road this morning, and I pray that we will choose to live passionately for Jesus Christ.